It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day, listeners, and welcome to Hard Hats and High Viz. I think we're on week 23, Jack. They said we'd never make it. But here we are, and uh, we've got uh, all, all political, uh, social and media and sporting stories from around Australia to cover today. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack. Happy birthday, Jack. Thank you very much. 67? 60, 67. It's not quite dinner for two. No, 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 no. It's ticking them over, though, you know. <laughs> ticking and them over. Yeah. And I believe in, uh, in honour of this momentous event, there's a public holiday in Hong Kong. Well, one yeah. of many. Yeah, it, well, it's one of many. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was appropriate that they should give, should declare a public holiday for my 67th birthday. But Absolutely. it's also Autumn Moon Festival, which is... <laughs> the pubs will be open all night, by the yeah, way, yeah. yeah. Which, which means that um, yeah, it, it's meant to mean kind of the end of summer. The humidity is supposed to start dropping from tomorrow on, but it doesn't quite work like that. But. Yeah, no, look, uh, uh, climate doesn't quite follow the calendar. But, um, uh, look, happy birthday. Uh, I, I hope uh, you uh, you come to the show full uh, full of uh, celebration and joy. Um, uh, of course, uh, as we covered in our Around the World show uh, last Friday, uh, the Queen is dead. Long live the King. Charles III is our new head of state in Australia and uh, I was, look, we're getting absolute wall-to-wall coverage in the media at the moment to the point, I think, of some frustration for some people. Um, but there was, there was some media, uh, media reports of note to, to, uh, uh, to cover yesterday, including proclamations being read out in all state and territory parliaments uh, on the steps of our parliaments to sizable crowds. Um, uh, wanting to uh, uh, get a moment in history. Uh, uh, the proclamation, of course, was to announce that our new head of state, our new monarch, uh, the King of Australia, is Charles III. Well, it's, it's been getting a lot of coverage around the world, and um, uh, and that's because people are interested in it. I, I think there's no problem with the World War coverage because I, I think people want to watch it. Oh, look, there's it, a very serious um, uh, aspect of, of just being part of history, uh, regardless of what uh, your views may be on, on, on the monarchy, that, that as we said on, uh, as we said last Friday, the, the, the common figure in our lives in terms of political leadership, uh, was Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, mm. uh, uh, she was, uh, uh, she was uh, uh, crowned uh, ten years after my uh, after my after my birth, and uh, and and she was just that she's always been there, and now of course she's gone and will be replaced by uh, by her son, her oldest son, uh, who people have got to know quite a lot. I mean, he was educated at uh, at Timbertop. School at Geelong, uh, Geelong College, I, I believe. Uh, Geelong Grammar, actually. Geelong, Geelong Grammar. Grammar. You yeah. know, I always get them mixed up. Um, yeah. And uh, he was educated here briefly in Australia and, is, and has been to Australia on many, many occasions. And it's almost like we sort of know the fellow. Um, there was a bit of media yesterday. Uh, before he made his speech, his uh, televised speech, uh, there were... Um, uh, various uh, minions hanging around, putting things on the desk. Did you see that? <laughs> he was yes, sort of sending them, dispatching them off. You yeah. minion, yeah, get rid he, of this. Uh, he he did kind of hiss at the uh, the aide to get a little um, uh, a little pen uh, holder off the desk. Uh, it wasn't wasn't a great moment, and that's gone all around the world. I've got to say, uh, I'm yeah. sure. Um, uh, the Queen Consort will be taking him aside and saying, not so much of that, thanks, uh, uh, darling, um, uh, because um, it didn't look good. And it made the front page of papers. It made the front page of the New York Post. So, you know. Um, he's going to rule with love, but it seems like it's a, it, it's a, it's a hard love, Jack. Um, yeah. it, it, it's a hard love. I, I was particularly uh, amused to see that there is 
uh, a, a person, presumably not his sole job, but something of a valet who uh, squeezes toothpaste onto the royal toothbrush, in Charles' case, and and also irons his shoelaces. Yes, uh, I, I, I read that as well. Um, <laughs> I was just hoping that squeezing the toothpaste onto the uh, onto the uh, toothbrush was not a euphemism. Yeah, uh, yeah it can be. <laughs> It might have been. In fact, that's what uh, people suggested when I tweeted that up. And I, I said that uh, basically I wasn't prepared to accept Charles as our, as our new head of state. But then I noticed his freshly ironed shoelaces and I thought, gee, that's impressive. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will be in attendance at uh, the royal funeral, the funeral of uh, Elizabeth II. Uh, and in comments, uh, in comments today, as we record on the twelfth of September, he has said uh, that uh, there will be no referendum on the republic. That uh, the voice, uh, that is the Uluru statement, voice and processes, will come first, and the republic comes next. Yes, look, that's wise. It did lead to a lot of. I mean, look, if you'd taken. Lydia Thorpe as your best behaved green on your bingo card last week, Jack. Congratulations, you've had an unlikely win because would have been the, good odds. <laughs> I know. Yes, you prefer not to win it on the bingo card. You'd you'd like to take it with the bookies, but um, it, she was in fact because Adam Band, within hours, literally hours of the Queen's death, piped up saying that it was time Australia became a republic. Uh, and that was followed by a tweet from Maureen Faruqi, Green's New South Wales senator, who said she couldn't, and I quote, mourn the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised people. We are reminded of the urgency of treaty with First Nations, justice and reparations for British colonies and becoming a republic. Um, before I ask for your comment on that, Jack, that is a further indication that the Greens are not willing to follow um, the processes uh, put together by Australia's Indigenous leadership uh, that say voice first, uh, treaty second. Um, so that's another indication that Maureen Faruqi's on the side of Lydia Thorpe when we really just don't know what the Greens' position is going to be all over the shop at the moment. But yes, uh, uh, but her comments uh, on the racist empire uh Probably a little bit too soon, Jack. Well, people, there are people around the world who are running similar lines to this, um, uh, and really, what they want is um, uh, to be taken a bit of notice of. You know, right. it's just it's just a kind of a cry well, for that, help. You know, please take some notice of me. You know, that's I mean, pretty that, much how the Greens operate, isn't it? Yeah, Everybody, yeah, yeah. You know, look at me, look at me over here. I, I don't want to be irrelevant. Yeah. There was a there was a, a, a university professor from I think it's uh, Carnegie Mellon University in the, in the in the US who won the prize on this because she went a step further and this is before the Queen had actually died and and, and she went a step further and hoped that the Queen would die in excruciating pain uh, oh. on, on account of colonialism. Isn't so, that lovely? Yeah, so yeah, very lovely. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, even even not even Twitter could stand that. They've sacked her from Twitter, so uh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Because Twitter will put up almost anything from the left, so yeah. they could even they couldn't stand it. But yeah, look, it's just a bit pathetic, really. I mean, it begs the question. I mean, how many generations uh, do we have to get? Do we have to go through before the uh, business of let's say slavery and colonialism uh, expires? I mean, uh, Elizabeth was. Uh, a very young queen in 1952. Slavery had been abolished in the UK or Great Britain uh, in the uh, early 19th century. Um, and while there may be members of her family, ancestral, uh, who, who did benefit from slavery and colonialism, I mean, how, how, when, do, when, when, where's the cutoff on this? Is there no cutoff? It doesn't seem to be, does there? Um, I, I actually de decouple colonialism and slavery. I mean, slavery still exists today. It's just done by coloured people to other coloured people. So we, yeah, we sort of, we, yeah. we're supposed to ignore that. Um, 
But colonialism and slavery aren't the same thing. You know, you, you look around and particularly British colonialism, um, and they left a pretty good legacy almost everywhere they went. You look, you look at the successful countries in the world today, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, all successful countries, and they all were British colonies. And, and you look at Asia and you say, three of the great cities of Asia are Mumbai, Singapore, and Hong Kong. British, British, British cities, cities, really. Yeah, I guess that's not to ignore the fact that, you know, there were terrible excesses that went on through colonial periods. I mean, the, 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 the great moment of British shame really should fall in Jamaica. There are others, of course. Yeah. Um, but essentially what you're saying is that what the British left were structures for the management of countries as they, as they moved into independence. That is, uh, uh, independent courts, uh, separation of powers, elected parliaments, and those sorts, those sorts of uh, institutions have held, have held countries in, who have gone through independence in Africa, uh, in the Caribbean, throughout the world, have held them in fairly good stead. They had. They left the building blocks for human rights. And this is true around the world. Wherever you have these things, the human rights situation is not too bad. The rule of law, some kind of representative government, a free press or free-ish press, um, and, and a decent private property system. And, and the Brits left that wherever they go. If you ask yourself, why is Malaysia so much better off than Indonesia? And the difference is that the Indonesians got the Dutch and the Malaysians got the Brits. Yeah, so really, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's the shadow of colonialism. And we could talk about neo-colonialism too. But the shadow of colonialism is, you know, if you're in Zaire or, or what is now the DRC, uh, and you're unlucky, unlucky enough to have the, the Belgians. Uh, yes. Oversee your, uh, oversee, <laughs> oversee your country in terrible, terrible ways. The Belgians or the Portuguese. If you got those, you didn't go, <laughs> you were in trouble. Well, but if you got the Brits, yeah, that was, that was the best thing that could happen to you. Yeah. And that's not to say that it was good, um, that it was all fine and dandy, but that's to say that it was better, generally speaking, than, let's say, the Portuguese in South America. Yeah. Um, uh, the Belgians in the Congo, um, uh, and um, well, you know, the the Dutch in Indonesia. Um, yeah, the, the other thing to note, you know, get the death of the all the Germans in New Guinea, Jack. Yeah. Well, that's right. The, the death of the Queen. One of the things, that one of her great achievements, in my view, was that she really kicked off the Commonwealth um, of Nations in 1953, a year after she became Queen. Um, she really kicked that off. And that's a, that's a huge success. There are 56 countries in the Commonwealth now. I think only 14 of them have her as head of state. So a lot of them have become republics, but they're still in the Commonwealth. Not only are, not only are, are nearly all of the ex-British colonies in the Commonwealth, but there are countries like Gabon and Mozambique and Rwanda who had nothing to do with British colonialism, who have applied for and been accepted, and now and are now members of yeah. the Commonwealth. They yeah. want to be in it. You know? Yeah, it's it, it's it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting uh, element that you know that, that the countries with no background in in, in in British colonialism have opted to join. Uh, I guess uh, what you might say uh, as a, a union of nations. Uh, that uh, that have uh, that have, uh, with the exception of them, uh, that that one thing in common. They were former British colonies. Yep. All right. Now, of course, we can't talk about Maureen Faruqi without talking about Pauline Hanson. I mean, we, we mentioned Faruqi's comments. Pauline Hanson uh, said she should basically pack her bags and go back to Pakistan. Um, I, look, we won't. We don't need to comment any further than that, except yeah. to say, Jack, that uh, Pakistan was in fact a former British colony, a part of uh, British India, of course. It was. Uh, 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 she never lets you down, Pauline, does she? You know? <laughs> she, she, she certainly doesn't. Uh, but over uh, over to uh, genuine political leadership and, uh, and Albanese, uh, her Prime Minister Albanese, who said uh, this morning, I made it clear, actually she, he said this yesterday, I do apologise, he, he, he made it, I made it clear before the last election what our intention was during this term, 
That is the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in our constitution. I said at the time I couldn't envisage a circumstance where we changed our head of state to an Australian head of state but still didn't recognise First Nations people in our constitution. And the fact that we live with the oldest continuous culture on earth, so that's our priorities this term. I made that very clear before the election. It seems he's got it right again. In terms of just tapping into the national mood, I, I, I think that's right. I don't think there's any um, burning desire um, uh, to change the head of state situation. I think there is a desire to get something right um, uh, with Indigenous recognition. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm. I'm still um, not absolutely convinced that the the pathway they've chosen to go down is the right way to go about that. Um, uh, and it's going to, they've got to put it this way. I think they've got a hell of a lot of work to do to get that, get the voice up. Oh, as it I, I fully is. accept that. But, but, but what I'm saying is that, uh, the, the Farukis and the Adam Bants of this world are very much in the minority on that particular question, uh, on the particular question of the Republic at this time. That this yeah. is really not the time. I mean, it's okay to discuss it, but but for our for our poli- for our political leadership to be discussing it, it is clearly not the right time. Might I suggest, Jack, that the arguments for a republic might grow uh, the longer we get into Charles III's reign. That could well be the case. Um, he's he's certainly. As Prince of Wales, he had a sketchy idea of the separation of powers. Um, uh, he was a bit inclined to be jumping in and wanting to uh, let everybody know what his political views were. and hmm. um, uh, That um, is not a good plan. No, it can't be. I mean, we talked, uh, talked about the history of this. Uh, Elizabeth's uncle, uh, Edward VIII, uh, in his brief reign before he abdicated, he was uh, basically refusing to accept the advice of the government of the day at a particularly uh, at a particularly um, uh, intense period, um, just as uh, you know, on the on the um, uh, on the in the preliminary years before World War Two, and and it, and it could have been disastrous. And I think, as you suggested last week, it was uh, with a with a sense of relief that he abdicated. So so these things, and it doesn't make the monarch a rubber stamp. Does it? It, it? it allows the monarch to ask questions of the government about the advice that, that, that he or she is receiving, in this case, Prince Charles III. Um, and uh, I did note today that, uh, that uh, Prime Minister Albanese has said uh, that, um, uh, that uh, King Charles III should be making his views clear about climate change. Uh, but I suspect they will be tempered going forward. Well, I suspect uh, Prime Minister Albanese saying that because he thinks that Prince Charles' views on climate change accord with his. The yeah. problem with the problem with this is um, uh, they don't accord with everybody's. And, and what happens when he starts saying things that, say, Prime Minister Albanese doesn't agree with? You know, um, uh, in, in seventy years on the throne, um, one of the, the the great geniuses. Of, uh, of 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 her reign was that we really didn't know what the queen's opinions were, um, and that's the proper way, that's the proper way to go about it. There's really only one occasion where it's pretty widely accepted that we you know, we we knew we knew that she was at odds with her government, and that was during the reign of during the prime ministership of Margaret Thatcher, and. She made it plain she disagreed with Margaret Thatcher on because Margaret Thatcher didn't want to have sanctions against South Africa in an attempt to end apartheid. Yes. So that's the only that's the only known occasion where we know that she was at odds with her government. And over seventy years, that's the proper record to have. I, I don't know if you've seen or read the statement by uh, former Prime Minister Paul Keating, uh, Jack, but it was a, a, a rather lovely thing. Uh, it, it's not too long, but I, but I won't read it all. Um, he refers to um, her, her, her sense of uh, um, public duty, that, that she attached herself to the public good against what she recognised as a tidal wave of private interest and private reward, and she did this for a lifetime, never deviating. 
Um, and it goes on to say, and I think this is a wonderful point, in a 70-year reign, she was required to meet literally hundreds of thousands of officials, presidents, prime ministers, ministers, premiers, mayors and municipal personalities. It was more than one person should ever have been asked to do. I think that's a really good point to make, but he says Elizabeth II's stoicism and moralism welded her to the task and with it the idea of monarchy. Her exceptionally long, dedicated reign is unlikely to be repeated, not only in Britain but in the world generally. With her passing, her example of public service remains with us as a lesson uh, in dedication to a lifelong mission in what she saw as the value of what is both enduringly good and right. So that comes from an old uh, rusted-on-Republican Jack who indeed had told her that uh, that had he survived longer as prime minister he was he was going to um, have a referendum on the republic but he didn't survive that long he was the lizard of oz jack you yes, remember he, he was he, he he placed a, an indelicate hand at at at, at the back of uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, uh, while uh, uh, well, I think she was in the UK. While while he was in the UK, and uh, and this uh, led to him uh, in in the red tops being described as the Lizard of Oz. He was indeed. Actually, if you want to, if you want to, Prince Charles should uh, should have a listen to this. Uh, what I call just about Boris Johnson's finest moment as as an ex Prime Minister. He made a speech in the Commons, and he. Eight minutes, and it's well worth uh, well worth uh, the watch on uh, on YouTube. You'll find it easily enough. Um, and he pointed out that what she did in that seventy years was to be the one person in the in 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 the country who was above the political fray and above commercial interest. That she stood above all of that, and that's what Charles has got to do if he's going to be a success. And if he's not a success. The move for republics all around the all around the Commonwealth, all around the last the remaining fourteen countries, will gain speed. Yes, indeed, Canada and Australia would be uh, the next cabs off the rank. But in Australia, it would seem not in the term of this government would we be looking at a referendum. But I, I, I want to ask or, 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 or set out to our listeners where the Australian Republican movement is now in terms of um, in terms of a model. For, for a republic and a head of state. Uh, and this, of course, uh, caused major ructions with the, the referendum back in the 90s um, because the republican movement couldn't um, uh, settle on uh, a, a model that they thought was workable. Um, some people believed in the uh, election of a president. Others believed in a parliamentary appointment by two-thirds majority. Uh, and seems like the Republican movement has, has sought to address this uh, by what they what they call the Australian Choice Model, which will allow every state and territory parliament to nominate one candidate uh, for election to be our head of state, and the federal parliament will be able to nominate up to three. We will then hold a national election for Australians to decide which candidate should be head of state, so everyone will get to vote on it. What's that? What, how do you see that as a model, Jack? Oh, I don't think it'll hold up. Yeah, why? Well, I think the same problem remains. Australia's kind of split more or less three ways, you know, about 30%, a little bit under 30% support for, for retaining a constitutional monarchy, a 30% split for a, um, a, a minimalist model that is simply replacing the Governor-General with a with a president, mm-hmm. and 30% for a, um, a, a an elected model, that is where we all vote to have a president and vote on who the president is. And I think that split remains much the same. And while that split remains the same, we won't have a republic. Yeah, I, I mean, they've tried to address this by saying, well, you will have a list of, what have we got, six, um, six, seven, so there'll be ten, there'll be a list of ten candidates, Jack. It'll be like voting for The Voice um, to, see, <laughs> to see. And you know that the states are going to throw up their own, their own likely people, so Pretty that much. could be a... Uh, that could be a, a bit of a nightmare in itself when you're talking about getting a, a majority for Tasmania or South Australia, for example. Um, I, I don't know why, why we don't just uh, give it to Jimmy Barnes and uh, and and just get on with it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the Republican movement says uh, uh, that the president would act as a governor general, take advice from the government of the day, so the, the role itself would not 
change and under the model could be removed by parliamentary vote in the case of proven misbehaviour or incapacity. Uh, mm. So we're talking about, what is it, 23rd Amendment sort of stuff, Jack? I think it's 23rd yeah. Amendment where um, presidents may be punted uh, due to being drooling, uh, droolingly insane. Never been, uh, never been practised, of course. Uh a, a, a republic would require significant constitutional amendment, not all of it that would be subject to a, a, a referendum. The referendum would take a, a sort of single question approach, I, I imagine. But here's something that caught my eye today, Jack. The, the Australian Republic movement proposes the incorporation of gender-neutral language throughout the constitution, which is dominated by he's. So he, she, him, and we, we start having all those pronoun problems uh look my look my recollection of the law on this is a little bit shaky but i think all of the uh the states and the federal uh government have um what they call acts interpretation acts which already cover this you know it it, it generally says something like any reference to he means he or she you know etc universal yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I just found that to be a nice little point of trivia there, and um, gee, there's almost a column in that. Um, uh, it probably is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was. And it was news to besides, me. Besides, it'll give you give you an opportunity to have a free swing at Peter Fitzsimons, which is always fun. And that was my next point, Jack. The role of Peter Fitzsimons, who's the AM chair, the Republican Movement chair. He is a divisive character, and I suggest that that is perhaps not where we want to be, not the sort of leadership we would require. Well, he's a divisive character because he is so certain that he is right on every occasion and he's, and he's intolerant of anybody else who has a view or, or, or who's not as modern as he is, who hasn't caught up um, uh, with his opinions on things. Um, uh, so that that's... Not calculated, in my view, to swing people in behind his movement. Oh, look, I did look at the the committee there, and and look, I, I, I'm happy to say it. I'm an avowed Republican, and I actually support uh, support the election of a head of state. Um, uh, but when I looked at uh, uh, the the ARM committee, I'd have to say, Jack, without being unkind to any of them, that we're not talking about the nation's best and brightest. Well, I guess I am being unkind. We're probably not. I mean, the, the thing with a, with a divisive character like Fitzsimons is he's good at talking to the already converted, uh, but what he's not good at is, is taking people who are neutral or perhaps have a different view and calmly explaining a, a point of view that they may come to agree yeah, with. Yeah, it's that ability to persuade that that I that, that yeah that 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 I would say he is <laughs> he just does not have that that talent. And um, where would you where would you go? Can you name can you name one or two who might be better? Malcolm Turnbull, perhaps. He's, I know he's had a crack. He'd be a veteran, but he is a very eloquent fellow. He, he's a possible. I suppose that's true. He's a possible. Kevin Rudd, possibly another uh, another yeah. uh, Republican. Yeah, yeah. Don't think so. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about the ability to communicate uh, and and them being popular people. I mean, Kevin Rudd remains, you know, a high level of popularity, you know, among those people who haven't met him. Um, but um, uh, you know, that's what you need. That you need you know, uh, um, people in the political sphere. They can't be entertainers, actors. Uh, with the exception of Jimmy Barnes, of course. They can't be entertainers, uh, actors, uh, those sorts of people because they, they're too quickly derided. They need to be political figures with the ability to persuade people who might be on the fence or hold a different view. Um, it's much more likely to happen if um, there is a political leader from the conservative side of politics who takes this view. Yeah, that's why I come up with Malcolm Turnbull. Um, but um, although, yes. although there's plenty of people on the conservative side of politics who, who don't believe he ever belonged on the conservative <laughs> side of politics, that's the weakness of Malcolm in that regard. If, if John Howard could be could, could be persuaded to change his mind, he'd be the ideal person. But he's not. Going yeah, to look, I, I I can't see that happening, Jack. No. Either uh, John John Howard's uh, been a constitutional moniker since he was two, and he's not about to change anytime no. soon. Um, all right, uh, yeah. So so look, this I, I suggest to wrap this discussion up. The best way to approach this is in a year or more. 
that's when you get underway with with promoting and educating. We, of course, we do have a an assistant minister for the Republic, Matt Thistle Thwaite, uh, who's, who's, who's actually a, a pretty talented politician. I suggest you go very quiet on this for a while, Jack, and then uh, and then we wait and see what happens with the with the new monarch, and uh, and then uh, then the the, the, na- the nation can have a conversation. That'd be a great job being assistant minister for the republic. I mean, you should just sit back and do nothing for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, very busy, very busy, Matt, boss. You know? Matt, go and have a look at some republics around the world, yeah. and uh, you know, fact finding all that sort of stuff. Yeah, mm. um, could be a very, very good job um, for Matt there for a little while, not having to do very much at all. In fact, Elbow's just told him. Don't do anything for a little while. Yeah. So, um, yes, he'll, uh, he'll be able to put the feet up in the office there. Um, Stephen Rice is one hell of a journalist and a good friend of mine in today's eyes, has reported that the $1 billion a year golden ticket, that's a, uh, that's a perhaps a nickname for the visa scheme, will be axed. Uh, now, <coughs> uh, this, the golden ticket, um, uh, visa scheme, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, because this is your belly wick. Uh, if you come to the country with uh, $5 million in cash and assets, uh, you, you can, you, well, you can qualify as a significant investor, uh, and there's a special visa, uh, uh, and you've got to, you've got to bring 5 million minimum into the country. And there's no, there's no, unlike most visas coming into Australia, there's no age limit, so you can be 75 if you want. Right, okay. Uh, Not a single applicant in the past 10 years has been rejected under the character test, uh, uh, which is something Stephen's been working on. So if you've got five mil, it really doesn't matter what your background is or or so it would, would appear, but if you've got five mil or more, you come in and, uh, and you, and you get a bit of red carpet treatment. Seems perfectly fair to me. Everyone knows that people with $5 million have got impeccable character. <laughs> exactly you know? right. Yes, they've got $5 million, very good reasons to be, of, to be of good character. But, of course, that's not right. I mean, you do have, you've got organised crime figures and so forth yeah. uh, who can come into the country, and it would seem that over the, over the period uh, we've had more than 7,000 citizens from one particular part of the world uh, where there are a lot of people, and uh, and not one of them has been rejected under the character test. So that no. seems to be seems to be um, uh, a a good thing that we get rid of this. But it is something that a lot of countries around the world do embrace. You know, bring your cash yeah. and you can come on in. Yeah, they're generally called golden visas or some some variation on that. But just a quick run through: uh, Cyprus, Malta, UK, Canada, Spain, Italy, Greece. Uh, Austria, Belgium, US, Ireland, Granada, Antigua and Barbuda, Turkey, St. Kitts, Dominica. St. Kitts and Nevis, I'm yeah. sure about that. <laughs> uh, yes. Vanuatu, Montenegro, um, they all have, um, and that's just a quick, from my memory pretty much, a quick run through of, of other countries who have a similar kind of visas. And there's nothing wrong with the idea You've just got to run it, got to run it properly. And personally, I don't think it's been run very well in Australia. It was run by the Home Affairs or Immigration Department, but um, uh, the Department of Trade has, uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade have uh, stuck their nose in for a while. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They they Uh, do overlap a lot, don't they, in in, in immigration matters, yeah. And and there are tricky things. You you talk about the 7,000 Chinese. There are tricky things about... Um, in, in the way that the uh, significant investor visa works is that you're supposed to look back and say, well, where did the money come from? Um, uh, and, and when you're dealing with um, Chinese applicants who've got plenty of money, well, the reality is none of them had any money or their family didn't have any money in 1979 because there was no money. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, before the opening up of China, all the money that's around, splashing around that can use, be used for these sort of visas was made after 1979 or generally well after 1979. So, um, and, um, and it wasn't all made in, um, uh, under Marquis of Queensbury rules. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yes, it's a very good point. Uh, I, look, I can tell you that Cyprus is a major centre now for Russian oligarchs yes. s- establishing uh, themselves there and uh, organised crime figures as well in Cyprus. You mentioned uh, Antigua and Barbuda. You mentioned St Kitts and Nevis. Um, uh, it, it's very prominent in the Caribbean. 
the Car- the Caribbean, and and this is a knock on effect of uh, essentially of the UK joining the common market back in the uh, early nineteen seventies. Uh, is that uh, all of a sudden uh, these islands who had their sugar crop that was routinely uh, t- uh, snaffled by um, snaffled by uh, uh, the UK taken away was just basically that's how their economies functioned. Uh, grow the sugar, sell the sugar, you, you know, and, and keep moving along. And then when then then when uh, the UK joined the, the common market, uh, a requirement of the common market was that the, the UK would have to source its sugar from elsewhere. So that immediately obliterated these economies, uh, small island economies in the Caribbean, and that led them to say, "Well, what's what? What are we good at? Well, we're good at tourism." And then you think, well, tourism can fluctuate depending on you know bad weather and all sorts of all sorts of issues. So some of them, and, and uh, St Kitts and Nevis is, was the first of the countries, de- de- determined that they would have uh, <coughs> an economic citizenship program. So that basically means that you would either invest in property uh, that was approved by the government, or that you would come into the country with a significant amount of folding stuff. And be granted citizenship. In fact, you didn't actually have to come into the country, Jack. You could have just uh, invested in the country and be granted citizenship. Yes, that, that's that's still the case. Um, you know, certainly it's true of Cyprus that they are um, a, a landing spot for for Russian organised crime. But they're not, not the only country where that's the case. I mean, if you, if you go to Thailand these days, you can't move for uh, for, for, for Russian crooks. But well, I'd say that if you look at Monaco, Jack, there are more Russians there than there are monogasts. I mean, basically, you have to basically push Russians out of the way to find a local. Yeah. Generally speaking, I actually don't think there's a problem with having one of these golden visas in your country. I just think it's got to be better run than the Australian one has been up until today. And more generally speaking, um, the uh, minister, what's her name? Claire O'Neill. Um, yes. Uh, announced, has announced that they're going to look at the whole visa processing system because it's become too slow, too complicated, um, and, and it's made Australia a less attractive destination for migrants. Yes. There, you know, potential migrants, and I know this from Hong Kong. Potential migrants are looking at it, looking at where they might move to, and deciding. Look, Australia's just a bit hard. Just get um, a bit too hard. It yeah. has had the. I wrote about this last week. It has had the sort of skull and crossbones on the borders for some time, yeah. uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, and now we have particular people who've just recently Australian citizens who've recently applied for um, uh, for passports. Although that's a defat matter, will know that there are significant yeah. delays in getting them. Uh, and then imagine. So let's say Jack, a student. Uh, from Hong Kong wants to study and work in Australia. How long would that take for that for that visa to be processed? Well, as an average, the, the, the student visas come through relatively quickly because they're really right. quite quite easy to get. Um, the skilled migration stuff can just take too long. It can take a right. year, you know. Um, take so a that, year. that that just makes Australia uncompetitive, uh, and that's just a really it's really a question of of getting the process right and. and Claire O'Neill, I think she looks pretty promising as a as a minister. I've got to say, she's a she's a, she's an ex ex McKinsey type, and they're normally reasonably smart. And um, she won a Fulbright scholarship to uh, to Harvard to the to the Master of Public Policy. And like you, she's from the publishing uh, empire. Her, her, her mum was Anne O'Donovan, who you probably knew from the publishing days. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, she's I didn't know her, but she's a significant figure in publishing. Mm. Um, what about decoupling? Immigration from home affairs, Jack. I mean, uh, oh, I think that, that I think that needs to happen. Yeah, uh, it, it, it just seems to me that now that we've got this super ministry that was created for no good reason other than to satisfy Peter Dutton to sell, to sell some black shirts <laughs> and, and crank out a few medals. Um, it, it just seems to me now that you know we have. The, the, the sort of home affairs, the black shirt, uh, um, a border force squad, who would, most of them are just ex-customs guys, uh, uh, is sending a message to the rest of the world. And with the rest of the world has a, a limited, skilled and talent uh, pool. And we need to get into that. And we need to get into that. And we can't really have 
uh, we can't really have these kinds of impediments, even if they are metaphorical or symbolic. Australia's had one of the best-run migration schemes, you know, for 20 years, um, and, and it has it enjoys much wider uh, support uh, locally, like as in Australia, than most immigration schemes do in their own countries. Um, so the basic the basics of, of of the of the scheme are quite good. It's just not been particularly well run. The processing's not been good enough. Uh, all that needs to change. And in my view, decoupling home affairs from immigration would be a step in the right direction. Um, getting back to having specialist migration people running the running the show. Absolutely right, Jack. We couldn't agree more on that. And on your birthday too. Uh, in fact, that is exactly what I wrote uh, in my column last week. Um, uh, for our New South Wales listeners and others just generally interested in, in politics, uh, there was a Guardian Essential poll published uh, today, um, uh, a very small sample, by the way, but uh, uh, trying to determine an outcome in the state election, uh, which is uh, not going to occur until March 25, 2023. Only 661 uh, respondents in that in the essential poll, the essential the essential company does very good work, but that is a very small that is a very small number. So you've got a margin of error there that would be <laughs> hellishly large. Hmm. Um, but it showed that thirty six point four would uh, put the coalition first on their ballot, and Labor thirty two with preferences, and this is always where polls start falling over, it uh, it shows there's a prospect of a hung parliament worms. Well, polls suggest hung parliaments all the time, but they very rarely happen. Um, But it's, 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 what it's showing is a decline in support for for the coalition, but perhaps not as bad as uh, some people might have thought. Yeah, I would have thought they were in a lot of trouble, but you know, on those figures, maybe they can hang on. But the, as you say, the <coughs> the polls a very small one, uh, margin yeah. very high. Um, my view of it is that Labor leader Chris Minns um, uh, is the the best thing that they've put up for a, the best fellow they've put up for a while. Yeah, he's good. He's good. There's no doubt about it. He is. He uh, looks pretty promising. Uh, he he does look the goods. Um, look, saw a nice I, little video of him yesterday uh, teaching his little fellow how to ride a bike in a park. Okay. Yeah, yeah nice little, nice little bit of fluff there for his foot Facebook page and what have you. Um, uh, but um, yeah, look, those numbers. I, I guess what it does can do is confirm what are we at there? 68, 60, 68, 69 percent uh, of uh, of voters will vote for one or the other of the two major parties, and that. Is very much in line with federal and state um, and polling uh, or actual actual results in state elections and federal elections going back for a little while now. Yeah, and and that means the other thirty percent are going to decide who wins the election. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. So I mean, people will vote tactically. It, it, it's probably good news for the Greens. It might be good news. It's not good news for the UAP, Jack, because they just deregistered. They just deregistered their name, and uh, and and there are all sorts of constitutional electoral experts who are coming forward saying, I don't think they can re-register before the next federal election under that name. They can call themselves something else. And that was very amusing because they do have a senator, uh, a UAP senator, and he didn't have a clue <laughs> that the UAP no longer exists. Although he can, he can continue to use the name in the Senate because they have a uh, they don't rely on um, uh, the registration or deregistration of political party names. Very very strange stuff from Clive. He's up to something, Jack. Yeah, the minor parties are always a a, a, a source of great amusement. Uh, <laughs> it was really funny. He was interviewed. Uh, this is Babbitt, Senator Babbitt. He was interviewed uh, in the Age, and they said, "Oh, do you know that your party's been registered?" He said, "Oh, that's not happening. You can't be serious, and all that stuff." And they said, "Well, just just go and have a look." And he said, "Just one minute." And he came back and goes, "Oh, yeah, they well, yeah we have done that. I'd forgotten." Um, <laughs> It was a lovely moment, which we'll be covering in uh, in the conditional release program uh, very, very soon. Um, yeah, look, uh, a lot of this remains to be seen. Um, what we are seeing at the moment in New South Wales, Jack, is we're going through a, a process, uh, an independent um, uh, 
uh, investigation into parliamentary standards in regard to the prospect of bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, that sort of thing. And there is some concern about it because it effectively gives people a free hit. You know, people who might be disgruntled with their with their bosses, who might be elected representatives, can come forward and have a, and take a and take a bit of a slap back. And it's really gone all over the place. There are allegations against Greens MPs, Labor MPs, and of course, in the coalition. Mm. Yeah, well, there's there's never any shortage of the less than gruntled um, uh, in yeah. uh, in, uh, in <laughs> politics. So uh, that's why these inquiries are generally a bad idea. Yeah. uh, Look, it just depends on how they take evidence, though. And what's been criticised about this investigation is that there is no ability to cross-examine or test the claims of those coming forward. And I think there is an issue there in terms of just natural justice. I think that's right. Yes. all right. Now, look, uh, just uh, in my particular part of the world, are very close to it there, and, and, and many people around the country will have heard of this. There was a, a car crash just outside of Buxton, about 100k f- uh, south of Sydney, with uh, five dead teenagers uh, driven into one car, uh, aged between 14 and 16. Terrible tragedy. And the 18-year-old driver, his name is Tyrrell Edwards, has been t- remanded in custody. Uh, he was a plate plate driver. He had a bit of a history of speeding and having lost his licence and uh, he was driving a foot with a four-door cabin and, and all five passengers, it would seem, were not secured by seatbelts and the truck hit a tree. And it's, it's just a terrible piece of news. I was uh, This is sort of close enough to me to have that sort of ripple effect where there is sort of profound shock where, where I am in, uh, in, that, in this particular part of the world known as the Southern Highlands. And one of the comments from uh, one of the children was, look, uh, not not one of the victims, obviously, but one of one of uh, one of their friends was. Look, it's the Southern Highlands, and there's nothing to do, and that is nothing else to do. They were going on a Macca's run, uh, the six the six kids, including the eighteen year old driver, and he was going. It would seem going a bit too fast. They weren't secured in the vehicle with seatbelts, and and it's led to this terrible tragedy. And it's led to a, a discussion about what can be done. Jack, uh, I know some states uh, limit the number of drivers that a pea plater can can take, a number of uh, passengers that are, that are driver on on green pea plates in New South Wales, which means you're one or two years out from getting your license. Uh, possibly something like that. I mean, in the end, what we're dealing with, I mean, Tyrrell Edwards is, is a young kid whose who's, who's life will be ruined by this, and he's almost. Um, Certain to uh, to get a, a custodial sentence and a fairly significant one. He's been he's been charged with five counts of uh, dangerous driving, occasioning death. What can be done? I mean, uh, young people are going to young people think they're bulletproof. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is these country towns. There's not a lot going on. Um, and this 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 uh, accident actually occurred. I think it was on Tuesday night. Yeah, well, I grew up in country towns, uh, uh, rural towns in Victoria. Uh, anyone who's my age who grew up in uh, in those sort of country towns will be able to sit back today and think about it and remember four, five, six, seven young people who you knew who didn't make yeah. it through to yeah. thirty or so. And, and this in the day, in the day, so not not to put too fine a point on it, Jack. The cars were pretty ordinary. The roads were uh, often appalling. Uh, very little signage on the road or on the side of it. Um, and uh, but it still tells us this this event. It still tells us that that these multiple tragedies can occur. On our, on our roads. Good thing is it happens a hell of a lot less yeah. than it used yeah, to. That's true. Um, but uh, and and some of the things you're suggesting, I think, are good ideas. But there's only so much you can do because young people love to be idiots. Well, I mean, you know? I mean it's great fun. You being and an I idiot. would have gone through that. I, mean, I remember sitting in the back of a sitting in the back of a Ute going down a freeway at 100 kilometres an hour. You know, I mean, just yeah. nutty stuff. You look back and you sort of you get the chills. Um, but you know, that's just sort of the way things are when you're 18, 19. You just think nothing's going to happen. There'll be no consequences. Yeah, I did enjoy great. 
like to hear anyway. There's nothing very good about any of this, but one of the uh, one of the parents of one of the five teenage victims has come forward and said immediately, actually, that he did not blame the driver, uh, and he immediately understood that you know uh, this was a terrible tragedy that really could have occurred to any one of us uh, at any stage in the junction when, uh, along the, along the journey when when we've sort of done reckless things. Yeah, terrible tragedy. Yeah. It sort of it had it has captured the nation and it and it sent really sort of ripples around the place and, it, and people are absolutely devastated in my part of the world. I don't know that there are too many answers to it other than making cars safer, making making uh, road road uh, roads better, uh, and some of them are pretty awful around this part of the world with all the rain we've had, um, and um, and and trying to impress upon kids that they are not bulletproof. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, now moving on to much lighter and more enjoyable uh, uh, topics uh, in sport, Jack. Uh, we are in the AFL in particular. Now we are down to four. Uh, the Swans will play the Pies at the SCG after Collingwood knocked over Fremantle uh, fairly convincingly, uh, and uh, and the Cats will play Brisbane at the MCG, and. The, the man who was making headlines for all the wrong reasons, Jordan Ngoi, for for Collingwood, Collingwood midfielder and and, uh, and and goal kicker, uh, is making them for all the right ones now. He was definitely best on ground in the semi uh, on uh, on uh, what was it uh, Saturday? He wasn't too uh, too far off of the week before either. Yeah, he's he's a hard body midfielder, so he wins a lot of foot. He's highly skilled, uh, and he can do the bash and crash stuff. Uh, and uh, and then be a very good user at the end of it. It's a reminder, isn't it, that um, sport just can't be for the choir boys and the choir girls. There's got to be a place in a sport like AFL for the blokes who are a bit of a rat bag. I mean, I think he's he's more than a bit of a rat bag. He's a, you know he's a card carrying member of the rat bag club. Yeah, but that's fine. There's got to be a place in sport for for a bloke like that in, for, as, as well. Yeah, well, look, and and they're playing against a, a, a club uh, this weekend at the SCG, playing against Sydney uh, Sydney Swans, who uh, <coughs> famously have a no dickheads policy, Jack. Uh, which I never thought meant that no dickheads could play there. You know, there's a couple who played there who I thought qualified pretty well, actually. <laughs> But uh, but they don't behave like dickheads. I think that's the thing. I mean, it's it's a lot of. I mean, we, we, you know, when we talk about the environment in Sydney, there are only two clubs in Sydney, and the other one really don't get a lot of press. So so there's really just uh, you don't live in that goldfish bowl existence that the Melbourne clubs do. No, no, and um, and unlike Collingwood, Sydney don't seem to have their own resident tattooist. Yeah, they got a few, <laughs> got a few tats, but yeah, the boys, uh, the boys from uh, Collingwood got a lot of ink, uh, a lot of ink on the arms, and it's almost like you, you sort of see one who doesn't. And uh, I think uh, uh, Scott Pendlebury uh, uh, doesn't have uh, any ink that I know of, or is it immediately visible? Uh, but you think, gee whiz, you know, um, you know, when's his turn? Um, no, look, uh, both games should be belters. Brisbane really did bounce back. Um, uh, after a, a, a pretty a pretty ordinary run into the finals, they were you know, pr- probably a bit lucky to beat Richmond uh, in the first uh, elimination final, um, but then bounced back and did a very good job in the second half against Melbourne, who who were the reigning premiers, bumped them out. Yeah, um, noticeably with Melbourne, uh, they stop. They play in spurts, and and if yeah. you can win the contested footy and break even at clearances, then you yeah. got them because they don't have the best forward line running around. I'd suggest that the big problem for Brisbane will be whether Jared Berry will play or not. He has been offered a, I think, a one match suspension, and he will go to the tribunal. And that regard, that is in regards to some. Well, uh, the, the AFL grades it as uh, intentional contact to the face uh, in, in regard to an incident and brings up the uh, the issue of gouging uh, against uh, Clayton Oliver when they had a bit of a skirmish on the ground in the third quarter. Uh, they might get away with it, but the uh, tribunal tends to be fairly forgiving 
um, during the final series, but they need him. If they don't have him, I can't see him beating the Cats. Should be two good games anyway. Yeah, all right. Uh, in the NRL, uh, the Roosters were sent packing uh, in a, a sp- it was just, it was a spiteful game. It's the uh, the Sydney Derby, NRL Sydney Derby, Roosters and Rabbitohs, and uh, multiple send-offs. Uh, uh, the uh, the, the um, the Rabbitohs uh, got got the chocolates, but uh, uh, Thomas Burgess uh, is facing a two-match suspension for a high tackle on James Tedesco, and he'll have to uh, spend some time at uh, the judiciary to see if he's a- allowed to play. Um, uh, an ex-rooster, uh, Mitchell Luttrell, was a hero scoring when the Bunnies had 11 on the field. They had a couple off, a couple sent off. Yellow card, very, very... Uh, a very very nasty little game there, and, and I can't see Burgess getting getting off the contact with Tedesco, which basically subbed out probably the best player in the competition. Subbed him out with concussion. Yeah, I, I just saw some highlights. It certainly looked pretty, like a pretty rugged, uh, pretty rugged encounter. <laughs> this is why we love the NRL this time of year, Jack. It does get pretty willing. Um, the Melbourne Storm uh, got taken out. I'd watched that game. They got beaten by the Raiders. Um, sort of end of an era. It seemed like it was the end of an era, particularly with their with their half uh, um, probably being traded in twenty twenty four. Just looked to be end of an era. They don't often lose at home, but uh, the Raiders, who just snuck into the finals, gave them a bit of a touch up. Uh, and uh, in probably probably in terms of just the sheer, you know, great to watch rugby league. Uh, the Sharks were beaten by the Cowboys who came from behind to beat them 32-30, uh, and there's a lot to like about the Cowboys too. Um, so uh, the, the, the Panthers uh, will have the week off, uh, as will the Cowboys. Uh, Sharks will play the Bunnies and Eels will play the Raiders. Uh, and the Panthers do look to be head and shoulders the best side in the competition. They gave, gave the Eels a touch-up. That's one game we didn't mention. They've yes, been the best side all year. They have. And by a margin. And uh, meanwhile, in, in cricket, Jack, uh, Aaron Finch has had a Clayton's retirement. He's retired from the ODI, but he's, he's still going to be in the T20 side. It's a bit odd. Um, Gee, but he better make a run or two. <laughs> yeah, I reckon he's made about 20 in the last 10 knocks. Uh, he got knocked over for five in the um, dead rubber in Cairns uh, yesterday uh, with uh, Stephen Smith making 105. Uh, and uh, and the Kiwis, well, they loomed, but uh, uh, their batting's a bit fragile. I think they're... they're the Black Caps have come into come into this series. It's all over now. Just the three ODIs, um, but they'd come in uh, uh, with uh, with some with some games against Holland, and I think um, you know one of the other sort of um, second grade nations. And so they looked a bit un, unprepared. They've got problems with their batting, the Black Caps, and they've got two in Latham and Williamson. They've got two guys who are batting three and four, who um, who are who are accumulators, and they need they need a blaster. They need a blaster in there to, to knock the ball around a bit. Um, but um, it also this series has just confirmed why Adam Zampa is probably or certainly. Uh, Australia's best slow bowler and probably the, the, the premium league spinner in the world. Yeah, he's certainly up there anyway. Very, very good player. He looks pretty good. All right. And uh, meanwhile, Jack, uh, the Wallabies play the All Blacks uh, this this Thursday night at Marvel Stadium in Melbourne. And they're playing, playing for the Bledisloe Cup, as they do. Um, but they're also in the rugby championship with New Zealand currently on top with 10 and uh, South Africa, Australia and Argentina all a point behind with two matches remaining in a competition that no team has managed to dominate. So someone will hold up that big trophy as well as the Blues like, well, if the, if the Old Blacks do win. Uh, what, what chance the Wallabies got against the OBs, Jack? Uh, well, neither of them are going very well, so they've got a chance. Uh, I bumped into a Kiwi, Kiwi pal yesterday and he said, well, why is it on a Thursday night? And I said, well, my guess is that the uh, ARU um, uh, are thinking about 
do they want to finish a distant third in the television <laughs> ratings behind the NRL and the AFL and uh, if they play it on a weekend? No, you can't, they can't play it on the Friday or the Saturday night, no. Yeah. Uh, that's just going to be a clash. And, yeah, no, that's very sensible. And, then, look, they'll get a big crowd in Melbourne. There's a lot of rugby union followers down in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see. It, 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 I'm not quite sure that Marvel Stadium is purpose built for the uh, uh, for, for for rugby of any any stripe or soccer indeed for that matter because it's an oval. Um, but uh, it is a, uh, a, a it is a ground with a uh, uh, with a retractable roof, uh, so that means uh, the surface will be pretty good. Uh, look for me, Jack. The old blacks. Didn't they just hand out a pasting to um, to the Pumas in their last hit out after a, after did. a few losses? So they might have just run themselves into form there. All right, so we've got some fantastic uh, footy and sport, and, and uh, footy in particular coming up. And, and the cricket, uh, I think Australia have got three ODIs against uh, India coming up. So that'll be worth uh, worth the price of admission there. Aaron Finch, of course, won't be there and... Uh, I'd imagine even Stephen Smith will captain that side uh, with the with the prospect of the big show taking it on as well. Bodgie's become a very handy bowler on top of his uh, on top of his uh, entertaining batting. Yeah, I thought they should have persisted with him as a test player as well. Myself, he's yeah. still keen, mate. He's still keen. Yeah. His, his off spin bowling now is better than it has been. Um, yeah. he, he's a very good, he's very good all round cricket. I mean, he's probably the yes. best fieldsman in the world. Um, but uh, his his off spin has really taken a taken a step up. All right, well, that's it from a, uh, from uh, hard hats and high vis for week twenty two. Well, Jack- except that, except that I think we should give Louise Milligan a um, a, oh, really? a, a, a round of applause uh, today. Yeah. Um, yeah. she told ethics and journalism the, sort of stuff, Jack. I think it was the Melbourne Writers Festival. Right, uh, and she said that reporters and media outlets must correct any error that they make. Yeah, um, uh, and 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 if they don't do that straight away, they should hang their head head in shame. Oh. Well, so presumably um, and, she's and, hanging her head in shame. Well, <laughs> given that she works for the ABC, who never apologise for any of their errors. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get me started on the ghost train. Um, that was really awful, uh, and and just appalling accusations made with, that were not tested because it was determined that Neville Rand and Abe Saffron, that matter, were deceased, so they wouldn't have to worry about defos. So they just surged on ahead with that nonsense, and um, and uh, and and gave. This is the worst part, of it, Jack. They gave false hope to the you know the relatives and friends of victims. You know that's that's what that's that's why it's not right to to, to forge on ahead with these sorts of accus with, with these sorts of allegations, in the in the hope that you know you'll create headlines and people will watch the show, uh, and uh, and then at the end of it you've got all of these victims saying, well, what happens next? Well, what happens next is nothing, because no, no one in their right minds believed any of this. Well, you know, they faced a storm of protest over that, and and in yeah. the end, they had an independent uh, analyst look at it uh, and determined that uh, that that the show had made mistakes, but there were no apologies. Well, I, I just think it'd be, a good, it'd be a good plan for the ABC to start putting a few mirrors in. There's nothing wrong. Look, if you get things wrong, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with publishing a correction and no. or an apology. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, we we all make mistakes. That's why they. Rubbers on pencils, not that journalists use pencils anymore. But yes, we all make mistakes. I've done it myself. I got uh, I upset Kevin Rudd one time, and then Kevin Rudd, you know, wrote letters and so forth, and I had to apologise to Kevin. And uh, you know, I did it. I did it willingly. I didn't enjoy it, but I did it willingly because, you know, uh, it's just the best way to deal with these matters. Mm. I, mm. Did I get it wrong? Well, you know, I made jokes about. The mental health of certain senior politicians, and uh, and that's where he came back. Came back at me pretty hard. So uh, yeah, happy to apologise. Happy to apologise. Happy to retract. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just be looking forward to the next Louise Milligan ABC apology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, Louise... Uh, but, I, but, but I won't be holding my breath. Louise, but, Louise did some fabulous work in, in Ballarat. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to say that. Absolutely fantastic work there. Uh, some of the stuff about Pell, uh, I... Um, because we, she and I both worked in, in that environment, a uh, clerical abuse environment. Um, I always steered clear of Pell uh, as a potential offender because I thought it was irrelevant. I, 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 did, I you know, I, I, I would get secondhand information and I'd say, look, I'm not here to talk about Pell. What have actually happened in the Ballarat Diocese was bad enough, you know, just an appalling stuff, just appalling stuff from clerical pedophiles. Uh, and, you know, very good arguments to be made that it was the worst sort of representation of, um, of clerical pedophilia. Uh, I always thought there was more than enough here be- be- before we went into fairly tenuous allegations against Cardinal Pell. Having said that, I do note that uh, there are civil cases pending or in the, before the courts at the moment that it do involve, do involve George Pell. So I don't want to. Uh, jump in on any of those. But my view was what is on the record was bad enough. You didn't have to do too much digging to find out that there were a whole bunch of senior priests, including Pal, uh, who uh, who stuck their heads in the sand about what was just appalling, appalling crimes. So there you go, Jack. Happy birthday. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a drink, big dinner. Uh, well, well, we've only just um, uh, come out from uh, the infirmary from having COVID, so yeah. I will I will see how see how <laughs> my good wife's up for up for dinner tonight. We might pop out somewhere just local for a quick bite. Excellent work. Well, you have a great day, and thank you once again. And we just want to say to our listeners very very quickly before you turn the dial, uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a review on your podcast app. Um, but also, we would welcome um, some thoughts and some um, uh, some comments and some questions, criticisms, whatever you've got, and you can do that by hitting us up on the Conditional Release Program at gmail.com. I do have uh, a letter uh, from uh, one of our uh, one of our listeners that we will deal with next week to deal with industrial relations, Jack, but not one of our topics for today, but we'll deal with that next week. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to Hard Hats and High Viz. Stay well.